Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for the love and support since we launched Origins Africa podcast in May, just this last quarter. We see your reviews, tweets, comments, and even emails. Thank you for your kind feedback. They really mean a lot. And that's why on this new episode and the next few, we'll be exploring some adjustments. Following a few commentaries received, we're currently exploring keeping the length of each episode under one hour, ideally maximum length of about 45 minutes per episode. So we'll be splitting our guest interviews into multi-episodes. Of course, what this also means is that as against the current bi-weekly releases, new episodes will now be released every week. So you get part one of a guest interview this week, the part two next week, and then the next week after that, we release part one of a new guest interview and the cycle goes on. What do you think? So please, as we explore this adjustment, at least for the next few weeks, do share your thoughts with us. Kindly let us know if you'd like us to maintain this adjustment of multi-episodes per guest interview to keep each episode under one hour or if we should revert to what we had before. You can send us a message on Twitter and Instagram at OriginsAF, a message on Facebook at OriginsAfrica, or email us at OriginsAfricaPodcast at gmail.com. We look forward, as always, to reading your reviews and feedback. Rest assured that we remain committed to bringing you premium content on origin stories of Africans who have made and are making their dreams come true. Enjoy. All through the year, I was working at the workshop and I was also writing, but I really, really wanted a corporate job. I wanted a real job and I'd been applying everywhere. I, I didn't even get a single interview. I think nobody called me for an interview. You know, so one day I was just really, really dejected. I was, man, it was like there were just dark, dark clouds all over me and I was so down. So I went up, um, I was living with my sister. And the house had a rooftop, so I just went up to it and I just, I looked up and I said, God, please help me. <laughs> you know, I've done everything I know to be right. Just help me. My father told me life is not a bed of roses. This is Origins Africa podcast, where we explore the origin stories of people who have made and are making their dreams come true, asking the what, the when, the how and the why. I'm Oshaye, and on this first episode of our chat with Dr. Taya Oyediji, the founder and CEO of Overwood, an investment firm, we explore how Overwood was birthed and its mission to ensure that Africans are able to save and invest and never lose their money. Dr. Taya also talks about growing up relatively poor in the small town of Ogbomosho in Oyo state of Nigeria. Losing his father when he was 18 years old, leaving his passion for music, and how following one's passion could turn out to be irresponsible sometimes. Dr. Taya Uyedeji is an Oxford-educated entrepreneur with work experience in finance and investments, advertising, consulting, academia, and technology across Africa, Europe, and North America. In May 2016, Dr. Taya decided to resign from his role as a regional head in Africa of a global ad agency with operations in 34 countries across the continent. 
he resigned, retired at the age of 40, and returned from South Africa to be with his family in Nigeria. Dr. Taya retired for about two and a half years, but how did he spend the time? I slept a lot. I I took the kids to their karate classes, played games with them, took them to their soccer games, took them to school, attended all the PTAs, just did all the things that I didn't been doing in the past. During this time, Dr. Taya also taught personal finance classes across the world, and it was while delivering those classes, he uncovered something which led him to Overwood, an investment firm. Yes, yes, I was teaching personal finance classes because I, I, I found out later that a lot of the things I knew were not necessarily common knowledge. I thought they were, really. I thought everybody knew about annuities. I thought everybody knew about saving a high percentage of your income. I just thought it was general knowledge. And then when I started talking about it, it became obvious that people didn't really know about it. You know, so I, I had a couple of seminars in London, in Kenya, in Nigeria. So I was going to do South Africa. And it just, I was just moving around, just teaching people about managing their money, regardless of how much they had. Okay. So how did Overwood now come about? Yeah, so I would finish those classes and people would say, hey, so now I understand that I should save and invest, but where? <laughs> right? So the but where question was was always there. And then one day I was like, guys, um, what if I start a firm to help people invest their funds. The biggest problem people have in Africa with investment firms is that they disappear and they disappear with people's money. Right? So like sure. they would make some crazy bets, lose everybody's money. So I said, well, what if that will ensure that no matter what happens, your money never gets lost and gives you good returns? Would you be interested in investing? And everybody said, yes, 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 yes. I remembered I, I I posted that question in the morning by about 3 p.m. About 200 people said yes, would very if that would happen, if that would happen. So I began to build the model. It took me about eight months of really hard work with with my team. Okay, we wanted to create a firm that would ensure that people's money is safe no matter what happens in the, in the markets and would give people access to their investments when they need it. So let me give an example. When the coronavirus crisis started, we basically said anybody that had money with Overwood could come and collect it at any time with no penalty. Right? What that meant was that was, that was different from what everybody else was doing. You know, so that's that that's the kind of fund we wanted. We wanted to be almost a family fund where we're just helping people manage their money. And when they need it, they can get it, you know, without any problem. So during that coronavirus crisis, we gave out almost 70 million of money that people needed mm, without okay. any penalty. Any some people had funds that were maturing in 180 days, whatever. If you needed it, you could come and pick it up. And I think that gave people confidence that we're not 
in this to scam them or to or to go run away with their money. So you're building Overwood for eight months. What was that about? I think you mentioned that you're trying to define what the strategy would be. So what what, what did yeah. that entail? So the first point was, is it going to be an investment firm or an advisory firm? I'm, um, I'm more, I was more attuned to an advisory firm. What I wanted to do was to hire a bunch of financial advisors, train them, and then when people need advice, we would help them decide on where to place funds. So we had gone on that mode for about three, four months. When eventually we tried with people and they were like, well, now you've advised me. What then should I do with the fund? Well, there are like 200 funds. Which one of them should I choose? Right? And then <laughs> it just wasn't working. So we pivoted. We said, well, why don't we then create the fund ourselves to help people do better? And then after pivoting, it was a question of, well, there's so many other people that are in this space. How are we going to be different, right? So you notice that our communication is a lot slightly older than some of our competitors because we realized that we're not structured as a business for the youngest people in our markets. We wanted to reach people with families, people who who were new to investments, people who were not just in Lagos, but were in other parts of the country, who could, you know, let me give an example, for instance, when we first built a platform, it was very heavy on tech, light on finance. It was all about, you could put in your card, and then there was this app that you could download, and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so let's walk through. If you live in Lokoja, that's like, in a, like, 500 miles from Lagos or more, right? How many times do you use your debit card or credit card for anything? Zero. And so basically, by building a model that focused on credit and debit card, we had excluded 80, 70, 80% of Nigerians from Overwood. So we had to think again, okay, so it can't be focused on cards. It's got to be focused on what people can do. USSDs, it's got to be focused on bank transfers, it's got to be focused on cash. You can even pay cash into an account. You know what I'm saying? So it was just the process of deciding between all these multiple options that took us some time to, to, to decide on how we wanted to play. Dr. Tyre's interest in finance and investment had somewhat stemmed from lessons his father's passing when he was 18 years old had left him with. Because um, I think after my dad died, uh, it was a bit disheartening to know that he didn't have a lot of investments. And so there really wasn't a lot of money left for us as kids to, to, to live a comfortable life. So, I mean, that was my first negative introduction to investments. So I wanted, I wanted to do better. I wanted to learn how to grow my money. As a young boy, Dr. Tyre grew up in the small town of Ogbomosho. I grew up in a really small town called Ogbomosho. It's in um, western Nigeria. Um, small town in that, you know, literally everybody knew everybody else. And even if you didn't know the person, you knew the person's family. And so what that meant was that everyone looked out for everyone else. Um, we, we didn't have a lot, but we're, we're comfortable. We're, um, 
my dad was an accountant, um, but he was working remotely. So um, he would go on Mondays and come back on Fridays. Um, my mom was a school teacher. And so, um, and I was, I was actually a student in that school, you know, so it was, it wasn't, it was, it was a really good place and time to grow up. But what that also meant was, for instance, when I got to Lagos and started working in business, I didn't necessarily have all the networks of people that went to school together in Lagos, people that, you know, um, that knew each other from the time they were young. I had to build a totally new network. I think the, the most difficult time was when my dad lost his job because um, we were primarily dependent on him. My mom was his primary school teacher, so she wasn't making a lot. So when my dad lost his job, I remember how we had to stop taking anything that was... So like, I remember there was like a two-year period when we could have milk or egg in the house because it was too expensive. You know, I remember the times when um, when we could only have bread on Sundays, you know, because it was too expensive. We had to find alternatives to most of those other things, you know. So those memories, in my view, just sort of taught me that, you know, you have to be forward-looking and plan for the future because you just never know what's going to happen, you know. But it wasn't traumatic by any, any means. It was just a normal African um, childhood, in my view. He was greatly influenced by both his parents, especially his mom. You could actually call Dr. Tyre a mommy's boy. My dad was very strict, to be sincere. He was, um, he, he knew what he wanted, he knew how he wanted it, and he, you don't negotiate with him. <laughs> you know, so, um, but my mom was a lot more, more um, accommodating. I think, my sister thinks she likes me a lot, so maybe that helped. Um, <laughs> I, I, are you the I, only son? Or? No, I'm, I'm our first son. Okay. Actually, so. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, yeah, yeah. But um, I think what I remember the most about him, because he, he died when I turned 18, I believed. I believe was that um, he was he was a man that knew what he wanted, and he wasn't afraid of going for it, even if he meant overcoming. I mean, he never had a first degree, but he grew up to become the CFO of a bunch of really really good companies. And I think the one thing that could have been problematic was he wasn't one to negotiate. If he felt something was right and there's no need to, to beat around the bush or have the conversation around how to... He just wanted things to be right, you know, all the time. But I found out that in life, that's a lot of times there are many gray areas. He never saw shades of grace. He saw black and white, you know. And so it's also something I learned from him that life has many shades and you just sort of have to work with people regardless of what you think is right and how you see things. Um, for my mom she was um, funny enough um, she was she's very entrepreneurial but she never started her first business until she turned 55 which is very very interesting so she was a school teacher from the day she started working maybe 20, 21 or whatever till she became 55 
and then my dad got really sick and because my dad was very sick she had to think and start thinking about business in a way that she, so that she would be able to provide for us if anything happened to him and so she started a school um it was just a school with about 10 20 kids to start with um and between 55 now she's about 85 30 years 30 years is a long time though she's built this thing into this humongous school that has a primary school secondary school that's great nursery school boarding house three different campuses and it's just <laughs> absolutely amazing and she she never run a business till she turned 55 and she's just built an amazing business um, ever since would you so say that's where you got your entrepreneurial skills I think so. I think so. I think so. I think mom is um like I I I admire her so much. I admire because you know when my father died and this is an African story which you know very well. Um nobody rallied around to help us because the man obviously didn't have life insurance. He didn't have an education fund for us. He just lived his life and everything was just one day at a time. So when the man died and three of us were still in college my mom had to take over and pay our fees think about that one school teacher woman paying the university fees for three children but she made it work because she then suddenly knew she had to become a businesswoman and so i i i love and respect her so much for for what you did after that. So who would you say had the greater influence on you, your dad or your mom? My mom probably, my mom probably. I think um I so like I used to go with her to the school and watch her make decisions. Um I watch her just transform from a school teacher to a business administrator. You know, I saw her negotiate contracts for school buildings. I saw her um gradually higher and fire employees i saw a business management model i saw a accounting model which That is still the same thing great today. experience for you yeah it's yeah, a yeah. learning experience yeah yeah it was you know our, our accounting model is a book you know so it's proper bookkeeping there's no excel there's nothing else it's a book that everything goes into until dates millions of naira later she still sort of works with a book and trust me if a dime is missing from that book that woman knows <laughs> <laughs> she knows she knows every bit of it yeah so she's been a great influence on me dr taya also spent some time with his grandfather who was a tribal leader jalakba of king and learned about tribal leadership a practice he sees has been instrumental to the phenomenal successes recorded throughout his career. For me the, the biggest part of spending time with my grandfather in that there's another approach to leadership. So I remembered this was after I'd gone to Oxford and came back to Nigeria and I began to have to take on leadership roles. One of the first things I was told was well if you're going to be a good leader in Africa you have to to be mean and vindictive pretty much you have to be harsh and hard on people who 
because um, if you're nice to people, they'll take advantage of you, blah, 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 and all that stuff. And I think that just brought me back to watching my grandfather lead his people. It was never hard or harsh on them. It was just always looking out for them and thinking about them first and putting them first and being kind to them. So I basically told the guys that were telling me this, that, man, that's not me. That's not what I learned growing up, you know? And if I tried this model, I call it tribal leadership, and it fails, then I'll take the one you're saying. I'll consider your model, you know? And I'm, I'm proud to say that every company I've led in Nigeria has, has, has succeeded beyond anything they've ever done before. You could literally go into the history of the company and see the before and after of tire coming in and by far it's 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 been it's always been a huge jump primarily because i think it's a universal thing when you look out for people they look out for you and look out for your company that's what i learned from my mom that's what i learned from my grandfather now since dr tire didn't have a lot growing up he resorted to books which opened up new worlds for him we didn't even have a tv at home that worked because back in those days um, uh, the television signals were not strong enough to get to my hometown so what that meant was I had to play a lot and read a lot and I think that's the best thing I can do for a child Um, so I had to expand my mind with books rather than just sitting in front of a TV Um, a day that changed my life was when um, you know this traveling salesman went by our house selling a, a, a set of encyclopedia and my dad looked at the sets and bought it. And so as a young kid, I spent a lot of time reading through that set. I found out about the world wars. I found out about some places that seemed so far and disparate, places I never thought I could reach. But reading those books sort of broadened my mind and made me excited about the prospects of traveling. Um, of course, there was no way I could travel. You know, to be looking around me, it wasn't it wasn't a goal that was worth pursuing because nobody ever left Nigeria from where I was going up. You know, but reading those books made me think about other things that I could be and places I could visit. So, as a young boy, having read those books and being exposed to another world, what were your dreams then? Yeah, you know, funny enough, I never had one dream. I always had several. I remember somebody asked me when I was like 10 or so. So at 10, I went to boarding school and I had to sort of take care of myself and be independent from 10. So I've, I've been independent since I turned 10, actually. And somebody asked me, what do you want to be? I was in boarding school. And I said, well, I want to be a pilot, an engineer, and also a business person. You know, So it wasn't like... <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Because, you know, it wasn't like there was always one thing that I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to be successful in whatever I did. So um, there was an uncle of mine that was a really, really successful director at ExxonMobil. So I would go and sit with him and ask him questions and say, how did you go from Obumosho to Exxon? Um, How did you become this and that? And I just just knew that. Probably was 13, 14 when I started going to ask the man questions. Because I mean, wow, I just young. I knew that. Yeah, no, I knew I didn't want to be there forever. I knew I didn't want to struggle for food. I knew I didn't want my kids to not have enough. 
I just, I knew I wanted to be successful from a young age. I could see the difference between successful people and, and unsuccessful people. And I knew I didn't want to be in the other camp. I knew the camp I wanted to be in. <laughs> okay. You know? And so, <laughs> yeah, that was... Uh, so you met him, and so what did you learn from asking him questions? Um, he kept he kept talking about integrity. Let people trust. Let people be able to trust you. And um, and he, he also said you have to work harder than anybody, everybody else. You know, I mean, I I, I wasn't sure exactly what he meant, but with time, I began to understand that it wasn't just about showing up early at work and leaving late and all that. So it was about being really strategic with your work. Um, and you would talk a lot about um, just keeping your eyes open for opportunities and not being afraid of the work that comes with more opportunities. And um, we, would, we, would just, we would just hang out. You know, I've always liked to hold people for some reason. I don't know if, I don't know if that's still allowed to be that they, well, what's the political correct way of saying <laughs> old people, whatever. But I've always liked old people because they're just full of wisdom, you know? Like, they don't need to know everything, but they have experiences that you can glean from. So I'll just sit with him and we'll talk. And he, he loved it. I loved it. Because uh, literally nobody else had time for him, you know? Everybody else wanted to do cool things or whatever. But I didn't mind sitting with him. It was, it was fun. Okay. So from the learnings from your talk with him, how did that translate into you now studying mechanical engineering in university? Yeah. Mechanical engineering was, was, was not what I wanted to study. So this again is a, is 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 the is the shame of Africa that we, we all know this story. There are too many people that it has happened to. So when I took my exams, I I had some of the best core in all of Nigeria on on the entrance exam to university. It's called JAM. So I told my dad that I wanted to study computer science because really that was what I wanted to study. So you had wanted to study computer science. So what had informed yes, this interest? Yes. yes, yes. So I had um, some uncle had traveled and had bought a programmable calculator for me. So the programmable calculator actually compiles Fortran. Fortran is, a, is an old computer science language. And it came with a book. So using that book, and the programmable calculator, I had learned to code. I had learned to write fourth one right there in the Bumosha when I was 13. Interesting. Yes. So I remember the first thing I built was tic-tac-toe, the game. And I built that at 13. It was a very functional version of it. And if I went in America or anywhere else, back in those days, programming and learning all by myself with nobody else within a thousand miles knowing anything about computers, somebody would have scooped me up, you know, MIT, Harvard or whatever, and would have just, you know, used that to turn me into a proper 
computer guru or whatever. Maybe I'll be talking with them, but they'll get to this. But that's another story. So I had done that. And when I took the exam and I did so well, my dad said, computer science, what's that nonsense? That's never going to become anything. That's a really, really horrible course to study. When you see engineers, you know, those are the people that I'm changing the world. Go on and study mechanical engineering. And I said, no, I want to study computer science. And said, well, I'm paying your fees. I'm paying your school fees. So you have to study mechanical engineering. So that's how I ended up studying mechanical engineering. It wasn't what I wanted, you know. And uh, to, like, till date, I started learning to code again at 42. So I didn't code from that day till I turned 42. Oh, and wow. Shocked. Yeah, today I write, I write HTML, CSS, JavaScript, Python, and a couple of other languages that I've learned within the last one or two years. Yeah. But I really should have studied computer science. Any regrets? Oh, lots of regrets. Really, really lots of regrets. Yeah. I I feel like I feel like um I could have I could have done some amazing things if I had studied computer science, really. I feel like I could have had amazing opportunities in many regards. But no, I'm 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 fairly successful. I'm happy where I am. My life is good. <laughs> I'm not, That's great. You know, but, That's great. But I feel it could have it could have been a lot better. Okay. So you got into the university, started mechanical engineering. Did you enjoy it? No, I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't I wasn't even a good mechanical engineer. I wasn't a good engineer at all. Um, I wasn't interested. I went to class when I wanted to. I, um, yeah, I mean, and, and I didn't finish with the kinds of grades that I knew I was capable of, you know. Um, and, you know, the funny thing is people will hear this and think, oh, it turned out successful despite this not so great grades out of college. Well, it's an anomaly, you know, because when you're in college, the only thing, reason people have to think you're smart is, is your grades. So what I tell young people is focus on your grades and make sure you do well. Because people use that to judge you all the time. But I didn't, I wasn't great at all. You know, I got, but I, when I got into my master's program and PhD program, I, I then went crazy and decided that I was going to work up to what I knew I was capable of. And I think... I think I finished with maybe 3.99 or 3.98 or something out of four um, was That's my strange. final GPA. Yeah. I think master's into PhD, I probably did about 25 courses and I had 24 A's and only one D. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I wasn't a good engineer. Um, at all. <laughs> Since you weren't interested, was your attention focused somewhere else? Did you have new interest? Did you explore the interest? Or what were you yeah, spending well, the bulk of your time doing that? Man, I, I, I explored, I learned finance. I explored advertising. I explored marketing. I explored everything else but mechanical engineering. When you were leaving school, at that point, did you have clarity on what you wanted to do or which career field you were going into at the point of graduation? Well, um, I didn't have clarity. I think most people don't have clarity. 
right? When you're leaving school and they say, what do you want to do? Only maybe 5% of people can say, this is what I want to do and this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. The rest of us have to work at everything that comes and then eventually lives begin to, to make things clearer to us. You know? So everything that came my way, I did and I tried to do it well. And so one opportunity will lead to another good opportunity, which leads to another one. And then eventually you begin to have some clarity. In just a moment, Dr. Tyer will be talking about that moment he had to cry out to God for help on a rooftop, as well as leaving his passion for music. Stay with us. I'm Oshaye, and you're listening to Origins Africa podcast. Hi, dear listener. If you love our show, please leave us a review on iTunes and Apple Podcast. You can also send us a tweet or comment on Instagram at OriginsAF. We love to read from you. Nope, not later. Yes, I read your mind. Do it now. Thanks a lot. Also click the subscribe button and share with a friend. Let's make a difference together, one origin story at a time. Hi guys, welcome back to Origins Africa podcast. So after school, Dr. Tayo had been trying to get a job for about a year, but it wasn't forthcoming. He had gone on to do some mechanic work for about three months with a friend. So I was trying to get um, a job right out of after school and it was impossible, literally impossible. So a friend of mine was starting a mechanic workshop and um, he wanted someone to work with him on it. So instead of sitting at home, I just went with him and, and got started doing that. So I think um, did it for a while. It wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. I think the key thing about doing it was basically instead of sitting at home there was something that needed to be done it wasn't glamorous it was it was really hard work but you know i went on and did it so i would do that and then i'll get home at night and write you know so by the time during that one year i made a little bit of money doing the mechanic work but more importantly i wrote my first book and and um published it about two years after I left university. So I think, yeah, it was called Dreams Come True. It was a book focused on, um, on kids primarily, just trying to show them how, um, focus on how to prepare for exams, how to think about your life, how to plan for, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know anything, but the little I knew I put into the book. Because <laughs> I was about to ask that, especially because at that point, you hadn't been able to get a job yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, 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 but I had passed a couple of exams. I had gotten into university. That was a dream for many people, right? Sure. It was about how, you know, at least you to hear. So one of the things I'd learned was how to study for exams until date. That's still a major skill that I have. Right. And it was when I was studying for a bunch, like, let me give any, a couple of examples, like the secondary school exam in New York States. I think I was third in the entire States. By the time we took um, the university entrance exam, I think I was first in my entire school and maybe in the top 5% in the country, right? 
And so even when things were tough, the one thing I knew how to do was how to study and prepare for exams. So I thought that, and I, I found that a lot of people didn't know how to do it. So I wrote a book about that, you know, um, yeah, based on my experiences. So things like, oh, find the syllabus, work with the syllabus, study this, get this material, get that. So it was focused on secondary school students who obviously needed it because, I mean, it was, that book bought me my first car. Believe it or uh, not. Yes, I read yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sure, sure. I mean, people bought it and it helped them. I, I was actually speaking all over the country. In How did you get money to publish and distribute? Another story. I borrowed money. Borrowed money. And then some guy just had mercy on me and said, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to print this book. When you make sales, pay me back. You know, that guy is still my friend till today. His name was Kwekwonlale. We call him Armstrong. And, really and how, how did you meet him then? It was just a friend, some random guy that was into printing, you know. But now he's a really good friend. Like, he's my really, really good friend till date. So okay. he just said, you know what? I'm going to publish this book. I'll give you a credit on it. Go on when you sell. I'm going to publish the first 1,000 copies. Then when you sell, you can pay me back. You know, I paid him back within like three months or so because the book was flying off the shelves. And so, yeah. And then, you know, a few months later, I bought my first car. And, you know, life looked really good. <laughs> sure. That's, that's, that's great. I also know the cause of that year break. Um, there had been a dark moment where he had gone to the rooftop. Yeah, yeah. Could you talk about that? So um, all through the year, I was doing the workshop. I was working at the workshop and I was also writing. But I really, really wanted a corporate job. I wanted a real job. And I'd been applying everywhere. I'd, I didn't even get a single interview. I think nobody called me for an interview. You know, so one day I was just really, really dejected. I was, man, it was like there were just dark, dark clouds all over me. And I was so down. So I went up, um, I was living with my sister and the house had a rooftop. So I just went up to it and I just, I looked up and I said, God, please help me. <laughs> you know, I've done everything I know to be right. Just help me, you know. And I felt like I was just failing because I was also writing that book and I didn't know how I was going to publish it because I didn't have a dime. You know, I was like, I need a job so that hopefully I can even save and publish this book and just just help me, you know. Now, I'm not sure exactly how this happened, but this was November of 99, I believe. By Christmas of that year, I had three job offers. Um, you know, and I just, I, 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 I went on and um, chose the job at Citizens Bank. Which is um, remarkable. Did you do anything differently? Yeah, yeah. I, I think after that, I began to network a lot more, ask questions. I found people that had jobs already and now go and so what did you do? What was the processes? So I did a lot more research. I reviewed my CV, made it a lot better. 
Then I began to apply for all kinds of jobs. It didn't matter where the job was. I just applied for everything. Oh, you know, before so you specific that application, application process, my full-time job. Um, before then, I was focused on what I wanted to do. I was applying to the kinds of jobs that met the criteria I had set. But after then, I applied to everything widely. I began to use um, GMAT and GRE prep book to prepare for entrance exams and um, and um, aptitude test exams for the jobs. I began to spend a lot of time learning interviewing skills. I just became, I just made the job application process a full-time job, right? I'll wake up at eight o'clock in the morning and work on employ on getting a job till five. You know, so it was my full-time job. And I think that's too large. And in less than a month, you had three offers. That's incredible. In less than a month, I had three offers. So what made you choose Citizens Bank? Yeah, they they gave me an opportunity to work in investments. And I've always been interested in investments. So when they said, I should come and work in the investments banking unit, it was was a no-brainer. (laughs) <laughs> I took it and started in Jitsi. And I think I read that what helped at your interview was that you were able to solve their problem. So you're more or less prepared. Yes. Yes. So when I got to the interview, um, remember this was 99. Computers were still relatively new in workspaces in, in workplaces in Nigeria. And so um, they had recently migrated to Excel for documenting um, investments and had also built, again, this is where computer science comes in. They had also built a, a, a small program for tracking investments, managing the process and everything. So I came in and I was able to show them how to optimize the Excel and Access macro that we're using to track the investments. And I was also able to manage that um, that new program that they had written, you know. And so the moment I showed, came in and showed competence <laughs> in that regard, they were like, when do, when, when do you want to start? I was like, well, I can start tomorrow <laughs> if that's okay with you guys. <laughs> okay. We're like, yeah, and you had learned on, this get started. back then in school. Unconsciously, yes. not like you're preparing for a job or something. No, I'd learned, I just learned as part of life. It wasn't, it okay. wasn't conscious. And then it came in handy and you got the job. Yeah. I know at that point you also had a passion in music. I think you had also won a competition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my God, I don't talk about that anymore. <laughs> So let's go there a bit. I mean, I think you had been, you were a rap artist, you were hooking your demo tapes. Oh, so you won the competition. Yeah, so let's oh hear that. God. Yeah, so there was this um, talent hunt, was what it was called. And um, it was a bunch of musicians that had come together to do their thing. And then I used to I used to rap. I mean, I know a lot of people won't believe it today, but um, so I did my thing, and I, I had a routine that gets the crowd involved. Hey, so here's a cheat sheet for anybody that's going for a talent hunt. 
the way to win is not to be the most talented. The way to win is to be the one the crowd loves. The crowd favorite always wins. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I was the crowd favorite and I won it. And so it came with a free studio session to record my stuff and hopefully, you know, get a label and all that. I remember doing it and thinking, this just requires so much time. Like music requires so, it's got to be full time. There's no way you're going to be successful doing this part time. And the question I was asking is, what are the chances that I'm going to be successful and be globally renowned in music, or at least successful enough to be able to feed my family with music, versus the corporate world? And so um, I remember in the studio, there were a bunch of people that had been doing this for 20 years, 15 years, you know, still talking their demos and all that stuff. I looked at them, I looked at the guys at Citizens Bank and I thought, well, I think I wanted to be more like these guys in Citizens Bank. And so that was my very last day in the studio. Because uh, I, I just made a strategic choice to go for, for banking and investments. Yeah, Do you I, miss I, for music? I listen to music. I love music, but I, I don't miss performance. I I think it was the right choice to make for for me and my family at that time. Yeah. Mm. Okay. You never know what the future holds, but at that time it was the best one for me. Okay. I think I also heard you you had made some comments on how following your passion to turn out to be irresponsible. Yeah, yeah. I think that was um that was that was one good example because I think like there are many successful musicians and we see them every day and everybody talks about David Doe and Whiskey and AK and all these people that are successful. But what people don't see and what I got to see by going to the studio and working with this musician is that those guys are one in a thousand. So if David Doe is successful, if there are 1,000 or 999 other musicians that are literally living from hand to mouth. And there's no formula to say that you're going to be one of the successful ones. So it's, it's, I mean, yeah, you know, so it's a very, very delicate position. So if you intend to be successful, it's easier to be a successful accountant than a successful musician. A successful musician is going to end up making a lot more than a successful accountant. But accounting is a more regular, well, the word is not regular. I think the word is, is a more assured way towards being able to make a good living versus music. It's important to be able to follow your passion and it's good, but you have to make sure you can feed yourself, feed your family and just have a good life regardless of what your passion is. And sometimes the boring old jobs provide that while the exciting jobs like music, um, acting and, you know, dance or whatever don't have a really, really good um, track record in terms of percentage of successes. Interesting. So you focused on investment, did it for three years, and then you crossed over to advertising. 
Um, what happened was um, I got a call about a job that was um, in marketing. So I was focused on investments and I'd learned quite a bit. But this marketing job was with a startup and the pitch they had made to me was, if you come into this business, you learn how to build a business from scratch. So the gentleman basically said, now you work in a bank, what do you know about the administration side of the bank? I said, nothing. What do you know about HR? I said, nothing. He said, well, in the future, you need to start your own business. And if all you know is just one specialized field, you'll never be able to start a business. And so his speech to me was, come to this company, let's get a business. It's a 10 billionaire business. And I was part of it from the beginning. I saw it grow from scratch. I saw how we made decisions about hiring people. I saw the decision-making process about, um, about making, strategic, and making strategic decisions about um, what to do, what not to do, how to approach the market, how to position the mar- uh, for the market, how to think about growing the business and everything. I remember one key lesson I learned at the very beginning. The business was growing. It was growing really, really well. And then one day the CEO came and said, we're a business in trouble. I said, no, we're not in trouble. We're doing really well. He said, well, I just did the numbers and 60% of our revenue comes from two clients. That means we're a two-client company. If those two clients go, we're dead as a business. I would never have learned that in the bank (laughs) because I wouldn't be high enough to understand that. And so he said, well, our strategic goal for the next two years is to diversify the base of the business, you know. And so it was just good seeing very close up the internal working and running of a business, you know. So from that business, I went to America for my master's and PhD. And then I came back to Nigeria to work again in the business, the same business. When I left, it was probably a 500 million plus or minus business. When I came back, it was a 10 billionaire business, which was amazing. Just saying that from scratch, yeah. So that was why I left. What informed what you decided on for your master's? You know, the truth was, what informed it were were the books I had read. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Years ago. I just wanted to leave Nigeria to go study abroad, you know. Um, And this is how it happened. I'd always wanted to do that, but I, I, I didn't know it was an option. I didn't know it was open to me. So one day, there's this guy that was working beside me. We were working together. His name was Demola. And so Demola came to the office one of these days and basically said, I've applied for a master's in America. I got a scholarship. And now I'm leaving to go to my master's in America. So when he said that, I thought that's impossible. He said, why? He said, well, because I know your parents are not wealthy, neither are mine. So how come you're able to do that? And he said, well, the beauty of um, the, the schools he had applied to in America was that if you're a truly exceptional student, they will give you a scholarship to come study. So I said, Deola, why don't you write down everything you did for me? And I'll do exactly the same thing. And next year, I'll join you in the same school. 
he laughed and then began to take notes and gave it to me. Believe it or not, I really didn't care that much about getting the masters. But what I did was I began <laughs> to follow everything Demola did. I applied to the same school with the same timeline he did. And next year, Demola picked me from the airport at JFK. <laughs> Interesting. (laughs) It's such an interesting world. I didn't didn't even know that those options were available to people who didn't have rich parents. I thought you're going to study abroad, your parents must be wealthy. You know? (laughs) So I just, I did everything. I said you must score very high on the GRE. Oh my God, I studied like a madman. I scored exceptionally high on the jury. Said, now you need to write a couple of essays. I wrote the essays. I rewrote them. I wrote them a million times. And I sent it to the school. Said, now you must apply to one, two, three schools. These are the schools I applied to. I applied to all three schools that he applied to. I didn't even do any research. They said, then you must apply for a scholarship. Then I applied for a scholarship. I said, tell them your stories. Your story is interesting. I told them the story. <laughs> and then, <laughs> oh my God, I remembered. And it was the one year project. I worked like crazy for that one year. And then, so yeah, so that was. That was my story. That was how I went to it. wasn't It wasn't a strategic choice uh-huh. or decision or anything like that. Okay. It's just... <laughs> okay. Yeah. Then from there, you went on to get your PhD? Yes. Yes. Was it immediately? So PhD. Yeah, immediately after my master's, I got a PhD. Okay. Um, was that strategic? Yeah. You know, to be sincere, not very, not very, very strategic. Um, it was just that after the master's, um, I was going to have to go back to Nigeria to go and start applying for jobs and all that stuff again. You know, I don't tell a lot of people this, but if I stayed back in America to study for my PhD, there's a really, really good chance that I'll get a job in academia and be able to to hopefully settle here for a little bit, you know? And I didn't... I, and so, yeah, that was it. So I stayed on, got a PhD, got a job in academia, became a professor at the University of Georgia. I actually loved it, you know, and um, I learned to do really good research. I remembered there was a day that, um, I, w- I mean, I was working so hard that the professors were telling me to calm down. That's, dude, your, your own is too much. Just slow down a little bit, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And I remember there's a really, really, and I must call her out by name. Her name was Professor Winfield, Betty Winfield. She was a professor in my in my in my um, PhD program. She came to me and she was like, "Dude, you're killing everybody here. We can't catch up with you." Because I remembered there was a major conference, international conference, that all students were required to send one research paper to that conference, and that year. I had sent six. Are you serious? <laughs> wow. And five of them were accepted. And out of the five accepted, like two were top international papers of some sort or whatever. Yeah. And so she was like, dude, you have to calm down because now 
anybody that hires you is going to expect you to keep doing this. And I was like, ma'am, I'm black and I'm African. I have to work twice as hard as everybody here to get half as much as they do. She was like, I get that, but you can't continue to work like that. I said, ma'am, watch me. I can't. <laughs> so you see that you had several sleepless nights doing research, writing. Oh, man. I, that was the hardest I've worked in my life. I worked so hard during my doctoral program. Like, I mean, the things I had done in terms of research in that school, I don't think... She, she actually told me, Dr. Winfield, she said, the things you've done in the 100-year history of this school have never been done before. Right? So, yeah, I, I worked so hard. So what was driving you at that point? Is it that you enjoyed it or it was the drive to prove yourself? I enjoyed it, to be sincere. But more importantly, I also knew that I wouldn't get the opportunities that are available to Americans unless I could prove that I was much better than the Americans. So this, is, this was my calculation. That if five of us applied to a job, right, and four of them are Americans, they would be evaluated first. And relative to me, they were they are more likely to get the job. Now, if I want someone to choose me instead of the four of them, I have to be so way ahead of them that the person would make a judgment and say, well, this guy is so much better than everybody else that we have to give him the job. And that's what happened. You know, before, before, I remember in my second year of my PhD program, I already had a couple of job offers because I was working so hard and so, so way ahead of literally everybody else that was my cohort, you know. Trust that. Bro, when, when you've had tough times, you, 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 you adjust, man. You do what you got to do. Sure, sure, <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. So you finished your PhD, you went in to be an associate professor. Yeah, yeah. Was, um, so you said you had always wanted to go into academia. That was what informed your decision to be an associate yeah. professor? Yeah. Okay, yeah. how long were you at it for? Um, three years. That was three years um, as a professor at the University of Georgia. Um, and then I decided that, I, was, I mean, I finished my PhD at 30. So I was, when I was about 33, I decided that, um, that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life doing this. I wanted to work in, in, in the corporate world. Um, oh, okay. So, uh, yeah, so I applied to Oxford, actually. So what I wanted to do was to, to get a place where I could do a one-year Mass, um, MBA program. The MBA programs in America are usually two years. In England, it's one year. So um, if I was going to go to England, I wanted to go to the best. So it was Oxford or Cambridge. So I applied to both of them, got into both of them, ended up going to Oxford. And um, Why did, did you the, choose Oxford? Was that in particular Cambridge. Yeah. Really stupid reason, to be sincere. You know, um, It was just that I knew that I could come back to North America and Oxford is a better known name in North America than, than Cambridge. 
Like, it doesn't I mean, sound like, like it's the big reason. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, because Cambridge was giving me more more of a scholarship. Cambridge oh, gave me a little okay. bit of a swap. Yeah, so I left some money on the table to go to Oxford. Mm, okay. Yeah. Okay. So after MBA, what happened next? How was MBA in, in comparison to PhD? MBA was more fun, man. I mean, I didn't have anything to prove anymore. So it was just a lot of fun. I I had a good time. We, we I mean I was the captain of the football club. We we played tournaments all over. The highlights of it was when I captained the Oxford MBA team to beat the Cambridge MBA team. It was awesome. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. And then eventually we met the Spanish team um, from Aise. Aise, yeah. They beat the living daylight out of us. They almost killed us. Then <laughs> 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 yeah, we played London Business School. You know, it was just fun. It was it was Oxford. It was great. I learned, I learned more management skills, and um, and also management theory in Oxford. So that was really really good, um, but um, it was not it was not as intense as as the PhD program by any standard. Okay. Um, yeah. So how old were you when you finished your MBA? Thirty four. 34, Th- no, yes, th- you. Was I 34, 33, 30, 33? So after completing his MBA at Oxford, Dr. Tayo had received several offers from Europe and North America, but he chose to return to Nigeria. Why? Find out next week as we explore Dr. Tayo's return to Nigeria, his leadership mistakes, the challenges he faced starting Overwood and his general life lessons. Thank you for listening to our show this week. If you liked it, do leave us a review, a comment, and share with your friends. Tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend and to tell another friend. We would also love to read from you. So please do send us a tweet or leave a comment on Instagram at OriginsAF. You can also write to us at OriginsAfricaPodcast at gmail.com. Remember, do subscribe at wherever you get your podcast. Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, amongst others. Our sound producer this week was Tumisha Jani, and the theme song was composed by Just Ritimi. I'm Oshaya, and you've been listening to Origins Africa Podcast. Bye for now. My father told me life is not a bit of roses. You gotta put your way to the plow, do the work to smell the roses. Don't back down. Mm-hmm. Whatever you do, don't back down. When things get tight, keep the drive, keep the faith, stay in the fight. Draw strength from the motherland, let our heroes hold your hand. Hear the tales of those before you Let the stories motivate